Genesis 11:27 through 12:9. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families on the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. When the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, again, there's, there's a real excitement in the air as the new school year starts. And welcome those, too, who are outside right now. I know recently when we were going through James 5, we were looking at Elijah and his prayer that it would not rain. And it's, it's humbling, actually, to be in that same place right now. But before we, we come to this text, uh, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing. God, our Father, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for the promise that it gives us, and we thank you that we can trust this promise because of who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be, most powerfully in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would bless these words that follow, that they would be true to your intentions for this text, and that you would work them into our lives, Father God so that we would more deeply and more gratefully trust your promise. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, when, when we think about a promise, it's, it's not just uttering words. To make a promise is to put certain demands on the speaker. It's, it's committing a person to a certain course of, of action. 
So, for example, if I promise to visit your house next week and I have no intention of, of doing so, then I haven't really made a promise. I've, I've just lied. But a promise also takes more than good intention. I have to actually be able to do, to have the ability to make good on my words. You know, we're, we're looking outside at a possibly rainy day, and I do not have the power to promise you that we will have sunny skies two years from today. I might want to do that, but I have no ability or capacity to do that. So to make a promise, you need two things. You need both the intention and the ability to make good on the words that you say. And today in the, prom- in, in the present passage, we're looking at the promise to Abraham. And I should make a note here that, that in this text, uh, Abraham is called Abram, and, and his name will soon be changed to to Abraham, and so for, for the present purposes, we'll, we'll call him Abraham. And this promise that God gives to Abraham is to make his name great, to make him into a great nation, to bless Abraham, and even more, to actually bless all the peoples, all the families of the earth through Abraham. And Abraham believes this promise, and so Abraham responds by going by following Abraham's command to go. And so we know that Abraham believes that God has both the intention and the ability to make good on what he said. He knows not just that God is is great and powerful, but also that God is, is good, that he can trust God, that he can trust his promises, that he commits himself to this to the things that he says he'll bring about. And because he trusts God, he trusts his promise, and so Abraham has faith in that promise. And to be sure, faith is a very important concept, one of the foundational concepts for the Christian life. And perhaps few theologians of of church history have given more attention to faith than than Martin Luther. And in particular, in his treatise on, on good works, which functions as a kind of commentary on the Ten Commandments, Luther says something very important about faith. He says that Christian faith has two very important components. First, it's a deep confidence and trust in God. But secondly, it's a trust in God's goodwill for us. So it's both that God is powerful for us, powerful enough for us to rest our lives upon him, But it's also a trust that God is committed to what's best for us. We have to believe that God is both able and loving. And only if we keep these two things together, Luther tells us, do we have a properly Christian faith. And if you think about it, this actually maps on quite well to our criterion of a promise. God creates and sustains all things, so absolutely God has the ability and the power to do, to carry out whatever he sees fit. But God is also good. We know that God promises something when he says he's going to do something, that he will do it. God will not and cannot lie. God just is truth itself. And so God has both the ability and the intention to make good on each and every promise he makes. I cannot promise that it will be sunny two years from now, but God could. 
if he saw fit. So you might be thinking, fair enough, but isn't faith a specifically religious notion? It, it makes sense to talk about faith with respect to Abraham because we have this person whose life was defined by following and worshiping God. But what if for me, God just isn't a factor? What if I don't even know that God exists? What if I think or believe that God doesn't exist? Does faith then become a moot point? Is it completely irrelevant? What we have to ask ourselves, is faith a specifically religious concept? And I'd want to say both no and yes. No, because perhaps that thing on which we rest our faith, on which we place our deepest confidence, maybe it's not something specifically religious. But for that reason, faith is religious because we all rest our deepest faith, our deepest hope on some thing. We're all relating to something the way that Abraham relates to God. We might not espouse belief in some transcendent being or truth, but we're all putting our deepest hopes, desires, and ambitions on something. For that reason, we all have faith. And this is how we should look at the story of Abraham. It's not that Abraham is a person of faith and other persons are not people of faith. Rather, like Abraham, we all have faith. We are all persons of faith. But do we, like Abraham, rest our faith upon the God of Scripture, or do we rest our faith on something else? So the question is, what is it that we believe can support the whole of our very lives in everything we do? And toward that end, I want to progress in, in two main points. I want to look at the fact of faith, and I want to argue that we all have something like this. We all have faith. And secondly, I want to look at the promise of faith, the unique faith of Abraham. So let's look first at the fact of, of faith. And actually, one person who's very helpful in orienting us to the inescapable fact of faith in the human life is the, the novelist David Foster Wallace. And he has an often quoted and celebrated commencement speech, which he gave at Kenyon College in 2005. And, and this speech is called, This is Water. And he begins the speech with a parable of two fish. And the two fish come upon an older fish, and the older fish looks at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? Well, after the younger pair swim on for a bit, one of them stops and asks the other fish, what the heck is water? What the heck is water? And then as Wallace goes on to explain, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. And so Wallace tells us that we have to keep reminding ourselves, this is water. This is water. And this is really kind of a scary thought because the water is the backdrop, the water is the background for everything that the fish does. But the fish doesn't notice it. And this might seem counterintuitive, but this makes sense. We know this from another number of experiences in our regular life. Um, for example, my glasses, I look through them every day, but very rarely do I actually look at them. There's something that I look but very rarely do I look at. 
We might also think of, of language and, and grammar. So when you think about the grammar of the languages that we speak, well, it's going to structure everything that we say, each word we write, each word that we speak. But inter- interestingly, when we think about the language that we grew up speaking, we never had to learn the grammatical rules. Just being in that communicative context, we just sort of absorb that grammar. And we don't really think about the grammar until we're asked about it. I know from my own experience in teaching English to speakers of, of other languages, this happened all the time, and I realized just how little I knew about English grammar. For instance, a student might ask, when do I add er to the end of a word, and, and when do I add more? Should I say smaller, or should I say more small? And I didn't know that at the time, but there's actually a grammatical rule for that. That is, most one-syllable words are modified with er. Great becomes greater. Big becomes bigger. Small becomes smaller. Even more, most two-syllable words that end with y, ly, le, or ow are also modified by er. Angry becomes angrier. Costly becomes costlier. Simple, simpler, narrow, narrower. And if you're like me and you grew up speaking English, you probably can't state this rule. You might not even know it exists. But nonetheless, this is a rule that we all, if we grew up speaking English, follow naturally. We just sort of know what to say. And the grammar is so deep that we don't even realize it. It structures everything we say, but we never think about it. This is water. Yet this is not the only water that we swim in. We also swim, I want to argue, in the water of faith. Or we might say that our faith is the very grammar of our life. It's not just structuring what we say, but all that we desire, think, and do. And so I want to go back to to Luther and his treatise on good works. And like I said, it, it functions as a kind of commentary on the Ten Commandments. And what Luther says is that we never actually get past the first commandment. If you remember, the first commandment tells us that we shall have no other gods before God, and that we should put all of our confidence, trust, and faith in God, that we should put our whole life upon God, rest it in him. And Luther says that all of the other nine commandments are simply just the expression, simply just the working out of this great commandment. He tells us all good works have to be included in this one and receive their goodness from it. He's telling us that each thing we do can and should be an expression of our trust and confidence in God. For example, if we are tempted to steal or if we have a wrong or unhealthy relationship to finances, Luther tells us we failed to trust both God and his goodness to us. Luther says, if the heart anticipates God's favor and relies on it, How is it possible for faith to be greedy and full of cares? For this reason, faith does not cling to any money at all, but instead uses it with joyful generosity for the benefit of others. Luther's telling us that the way that we act is an expression of our faith. So in this case, we're actually expressing that our deepest faith would be in finances. And the way we use our finances is just an expression of the overflow of this faith. Again, faith is a deep grammar that structures all that we do. And if we break a commandment, Luther is telling us that at that moment, something else is is acting as our ultimate object of trust, of confidence in our lives. 
For instance, if we rest our heart in social approval, if that becomes our object of faith, we will be tempted to lie, to omit parts of the truth. If professional success becomes our ultimate object of faith, well, we're going to be tempted to work without end and to sacrifice family, relationships, friendships, and the like. The actions that we do are just the outworking of our faith. And that faith can be in finances, approval, or success. And so, by Luther's lights, faith is not only a religious term, or we might say, no one is really non-religious. To again quote Wallace, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the hardest ones for us to see and to talk about. Our faith rests on what we most hope for, desire, what we want to rest our lives upon. And this is water. It's like grammar. And like the fish, we don't realize it. Yet we, every one of us, I want to argue, are people of faith. To again quote Wallace at some length, quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the age starts to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will ever need more power to numb you to your fear of others. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud always on the verge of being found out. What Wallace tells us is that these bents of worship are, quote, unconscious default settings. And for that very reason, they are water. Wallace and Luther are both telling us something very, very important, that we all have something that we rest our confidence, our hopes, our lives upon. And whether or not we know it, it's the case. And the hard thing is, is that it's water. It's very difficult to see. Think about yourself. What makes your heart beat faster? What makes your heart break? Look at your schedule. How do you spend your time and your money? When you are running late, when you're busy, what is it that you cut out? What tends to end up on the chopping block? When you have free time, where does your mind wander? If I was to pull up your internet history, what kind of websites would crowd it out? Well, Luther is telling us that this would be an indication of our faith. But again, it's water. It's very difficult to see. I listened to an interview recently with a professor who was doing research on the role of technology in the classroom, and he was looking at the way that students were interfacing with computers um, and also doing classroom learning. And it was interesting because he he did um, uh, preliminary questioning, and he asked the students, you know, when you're studying in the classroom, what is it that you think will be your, your biggest temptation? What do you think will be the biggest distraction that will take you away from, from learning? And most of the students had mentioned some kind of uh, explicit content that you could find on, on the internet. But then, after actually observing the students and looking at the data, that really wasn't an issue at all, especially in the shared classroom context. What was actually the biggest distraction and temptation was something the students didn't even mention. 
It was online shopping. They were always on online sites, perusing online uh, shelves. You know, and it's, it's ironic because we think that given modern technology, we might never actually have to go to the store. But in reality, it might be the case that we never even leave the store. Everywhere we go, we're in the store. And we have to remember that we're not the, that different. We're like those students. We would probably say the same thing and miss the same truth. That's the problem of, of water. That's the difficulty of faith. And that's also the importance of community, of having others that you can ask. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a friend. I'm not very good at finding out what my water is. I'm not very good at figuring out what things I actually struggle with. What am I oblivious to? Please, please tell me. This is water. And this takes us to our second and final point, the promise of faith. So in light of everything we just said, let's use those lenses to look at the story of Abraham. And speaking on Genesis 12, on the call of Abraham, Old Testament theologian Gerhard von Rott says the following, Throughout the entire story, one must always remember that to leave home and to break ancestral bonds was to expect of ancient men almost the impossible. It is the reader himself who has to say that this departure represented a change of faith. Abraham was called to leave home, to leave his ancestral bonds, his family bonds, his family roles. And for him, in this culture, this was water. This was our base of security, of hope, of support, of confidence. This was the grammar of Abraham's culture. But it's very interesting that Von Rod here speaks of a change of faith. And Von Rod himself is, is a Lutheran theologian, so it's not unlikely that he actually has Luther's notion of faith in mind. And we have to remember that Luther got his notion of faith from Scripture, specifically by examining the Ten Commandments. And Von Rod is, is right, because he's saying the only way to explain Abraham's life is to say that he experienced a change of faith, that he now rests his confidence, his trust, his very life on something other than ancestral bonds. He rests it on God. Otherwise, his life just doesn't make any sense. He swims in a different water. He acts according to a different grammar. And this is not irrational. This is not bizarre. This is not even unrelatable to us. Abraham does what we all do. Abraham simply ranked the goods in his life. When we choose this or that job, we're navigating the goods of vocational purpose and salary and schedule and location. We're ranking them and arranging them, even if we don't know it. When we're busy, we're ranking and arranging the goods of family time, family meals, family devotions, church attendance, extracurriculars, sports activities, and music lessons. Whether or not we realize it, we are ranking these goods with each and every choice that we make. When we spend our money, we're ranking the goods of food, health, comfort, entertainment, hobbies, hospitality, recreation, education, fellowship, relaxation. We might not realize this, but with every purchase we make, we are ranking these goods. Every decision is an outwork, outworking of our faith. What we think our greatest good actually is. So Abraham did exactly what we do every day. He ranked his goods. 
but he makes a move that perhaps we do not. He recognizes God as his very greatest good. And so, when God calls him to go, he goes. And this is a very startling commandment in the ancient Near Eastern culture in which Abraham lived. As one commentator writes, common belief would have held that a deity's jurisdiction would end at the borders of the land where he is worshipped. The gods of the ancient Near Eastern cultures at that time believed were believed to have jurisdiction, authority, power in one particular place, in one particular location. They would be strong here, but if you left those borders, then they would be weak. One god might be the god of the hills, and then another god might be the god of the plains. But think about God's call to Abraham. He tells him to go. Go from here to the place that I will show you. And in so doing, he's showing Abraham that he is the God of every place, of everything, that he is a God who has no limit on his jurisdiction, on his power, and on his authority. But there's more. God does not call Abraham just to go, but he tells him to go where I will show you. And perhaps in our current culture of of modern mobility and infrequently leaving, Um, the call to go doesn't strike us as particularly startling. In fact, it's common fare in our culture for one to leave their hometown um, and go somewhere else. However, it's the second part of the commandment that rebuffs us. Abraham is not called to go wherever he wants to go. Abraham is called to go where I will show you. And so we have two parts to this, this command. Abraham is called to go, And that demonstrates that God is Lord over all, of every place, every vocation, every relationship, everything. And because of that, he's a proper object of our faith. God is over everything. He creates and sustains everything. And so he's big enough to hold our whole life. But if you think about it, a God of the plains would be much too small for this, just like our career would be much too small to support that weight. But Abraham is also called to go where I will show you. And that means that God might take Abraham and God might take us in places we don't want to go. He might call us to do things that we don't currently understand. For instance, God does call us to certain financial, relational, and sexual ethics. Are we willing to trust his words and follow him on a journey that causes us to leave behind certain forms of fulfillment that we can't currently imagine living without? Are we willing to go where God will show us? God puts a call in Abraham's life that's much more difficult yet much richer than anything he could have imagined. And that's true for every single Christian as well. If everything we do is an expression of our faith, is an expression of our ultimate trust, What do people see when they look at our life then? Again, the only way to make sense of Abraham's life is his faith in God. Otherwise, what he's doing, the shape of his life, makes no sense at all. Is the same true for us? When when people look at our lives, is the only way that they can make sense of it our faith in God? Is our life unexplainable without the fact of our trust, our confidence, in our good and great God. 
The Apostle Peter tells us that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. But of course, this is also assuming that people are both noticing and asking you about your faith, about your hope. It's assuming that you are acting according to a different grammar, that you are swimming in a different water. Think about how often Abraham must have been asked this question. And ask yourself, I know I need to ask myself, how often am I asked this question? How often am I asked about my hope? And this brings us back to the idea of promise, to trust that God has both the intention and the ability to make good on his promises to us. Do we find this kind of assurance, this kind of intention and ability in the other things that we put our faith in? Well, in a sense, these other things don't really make promises. They simply give conditions. If you do this or that, you will be beautiful, at least for a while. If you do this and that, you will be at the top of your field, at least for a few years. If you do this or that, you will have financial stability, barring certain market forces. If you do this or that, you will find romance, at least until the relationship loses its appeal. But these are not promises. When we look at what God says to Abraham, it's not about what Abraham will do. It's about what God will do, what he will do for Abraham, that he will bless Abraham, that he will make his name great, that he will make him a great nation. If God had said, do this, then I will do that, this would not be a promise. This would simply be God setting conditions. This would be no different from any work, contract, or cosmetic commercial. No. God promises Abraham what he will do. He comes to Abraham, and contrary to the gods of Babel, Abraham is the God, or God is the God that comes to us, that comes to Abraham. And for the rest of the series, we'll be looking at each component of this promise. But right now, let's say a few things. Namely, that God promises that he will make Abraham a great nation, and God certainly does so, as both Israel and the church look to Abraham as their father. Even more, God tells us that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And this is because Jesus Christ will come from the very line of Abraham. And this is important because how do we know that God has both the intention and the ability to bring about what's best for us? Because we can look to Christ. He's the one by whom all the families of the earth are blessed. To again quote Luther at at, at a bit of length, you must imprint Christ in yourself and see how God holds up his mercy before you, offering it without any prior merit on your part. From this picture of his grace, you must derive faith and confidence that all of your sins are forgiven. Thus, faith does not originate with works, nor do works manufacture faith. Instead, faith must spring and flow from the blood, the wounds, and the death of Christ. When you see this death, you see that God is so loving to you that he even gave his own son for you. Then your heart simply melts and in turn becomes pleasing to God. How can we be like Abraham and go where God tells us to go? Well, because we can look at Christ, to know that God is both great and good, so good, so loving, that he did not withhold his only son. Remember, 
To believe that God is only great is to not have a properly Christian faith. We also have to believe that God is good, that he loves us, that he works all things for our best. So ask yourselves, do you really believe that God loves you? That he has the deepest of goodwill for you? If we lack this, then God can only be a God who threatens, never a God that promises. For God promises to make Abraham a great nation. Yet in Christ, the Son of God is mocked, ridiculed, beaten, humiliated, and disparaged. God promises to make Abraham a great nation. Yet in Christ, the Son of God is cast out from the midst of his own people, the people that he had led by the hand for over a thousand years. God promises to bless Abraham with his favor. Yet in Christ, the Son of God received the divine wrath and displeasure that we deserve. Christ is mocked so that we can be made great, receiving the praise of God himself. Christ is cast out so that we could be a people, the church, the community gathered by God's own goodness. On the, Christ cross, on the cross, Christ experienced the disfavor of God so that we could receive the very blessing of God's favor. And so we know that we can go where God shows us because we do not go to earn his favor. That would not be a promise. Rather, everything we do is because we already have God's favor. We move out from that favor. Think about children. Children are much more likely to obey their parents when they know that their parents love them, when they trust them, when they know that they always have their best in mind. Well, the same is true for us. Do you really believe you have God's favor? Do you absolutely believe God's good will for you? Do you trust that God is good and he has the utmost good will for you? Then trust and obey him. Trust that he knows the best way for us to lead our lives. But again, this is a matter of promise, of trust. But let's ask one final question. What about the fish? Is there a time when fish ever actually think about water? Well, probably when something is wrong with the water. I, I know this is the case with me and, and air. I don't usually think about air, but there are certain times I do. So last weekend, for example, I went camping with, uh, with my kids, and there was a rainstorm. So I got out the, the tent to put over, or the, the, the tarp to put over the top of, of the tent. And I remember thinking, ah, I hope that we can all still breathe. I, I hope that this doesn't suffocate us inside the tent. And we were fine. It, it wasn't an issue. But the only reason I thought about air was because I was looking at something that might actually keep me from breathing. It was the fact that something might be wrong that made me step back and think about the air. Well, the same is true for the fish. Fish are not meant to swim through sludge, and I'm sure they'll notice the sludge, but neither are we. And that's also a call for us to check our heart, to check the water we swim in, to check where is our faith. Ask yourself, ask someone else, are you perpetually stressed, angry, worried, fearful, disappointed, cynical? Really think about this, because these responses can be a kind of gracious gift from God, an indication that something isn't right in the water that you're swimming in. It's a kind of invocation, or invitation to place our confidence and trust in God, a merciful message to rest in his promise. For when our trust is in God's promise, that promise fulfilled in Christ, we can rest even as life gets difficult and it absolutely will because we know that nothing, absolutely nothing, escapes God's good purposes for us. 
Even in the most tragic of circumstances, and I say this with trepidation, we know that God is growing us into what he intends us to be. We can say, I don't know why God is showing me this way, why he's taking me down this path, but I know that he's doing it because of his favor for me. If you are in Christ, you really can rest and trust. Accordingly, Luther gives us the following words when afflicted with what he calls body, property, reputation, or afflicted in body, property, reputation, friends, or anything else. Luther wants us to step back, and he gives us the following question to ask. Quote, Do we believe that we are still pleasing to God and be our suffering and adversity great or small? That God is still mercifully disposed to us? In this situation, when all our senses and understandings tell us that God is angry, it is an art to trust in God and to regard oneself as better cared for than one appears. It is an art to trust in God and to regard oneself as better cared for than one appears. Trust is hard. We maybe have been hurt We have put our trust in in people, and those relationships have been broken. So as a community, one way that we can help others move along in the art of trust, because what is an art? An art is a kind of craft. An art is a kind of skill, something we get better at. We need to push each other in trusting God's goodwill towards us. So what can we do? Well, we can tell the truth. We can be persons of our word. If we are a community whose words can be trusted, we are helping others to trust in God. This is especially the case for parents. If you promise your children something, and I need to hear this probably more than anyone, make good on that promise. Show your children that they can trust your word because if they cannot trust their earthly parents that they can see, they are going to have a much harder time trusting their heavenly father that they cannot see. Again, God is great, but that's only half the story. He also has the greatest of goodwill to us. Let us look to Christ and learn the art of resting in both of these truths, keeping them together. Even when we, as Luther tells us, regard oneself, or let us learn to regard oneself as better cared for than one appears. Even when, like Abraham, We are made to go places that we would rather not go. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you are both great and good, that you are both able and loving, that we can trust your promises. And again, you have shown us this beyond a doubt in in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, with gratitude, with trust, with confidence. Amen.